Hi, and welcome to LGB Time Machine. I'm Theo, and I guess since this is the first episode, I should tell y'all a bit about this project and myself. LGB Time Machine is a new LGBTQ plus history podcast run by yours truly. I am Theo, like I said, I'm 23, I'm bisexual and non-binary, and my pronouns are they, them. I also feel like it's really important for me to note that I am by no means an expert on LGBTQ plus history. I'm just someone who's interested in studying it and sharing that knowledge with the world. I have a BA in, in history and creative writing, and I've been writing about LGBTQ plus history and just history for the last four years. Um, I spent a huge amount of time researching and writing, and it made me realize how little of our history is widely known or talked about. And that is so important because we as a community need to know what led us to this point, need to know about the conversations and the events that made us the community that we are today. So here we are. Also, a huge shout out to my friend Blake for coming up with the name LGB Time Machine. So LGBTQ history is an extremely broad topic, and my hope is to put out episodes that each focus on a specific aspect or event in history to help shed some light on it. My hope is to cover like events from all aspects of history, not just from the United States. As this podcast progresses, there will be smaller series and individual episodes, and if anyone ever has a request for something, please feel free to send that request to me, and I'll see what I can do. I want this project to be something that all people can listen to and see themselves reflected in. In this episode, I wanted to start with a broader topic, so I'll be touching on some topics briefly that will be explored in-depth in later episodes, including anything prior to the 20th century, the Lavender Scare, Stonewall Riots, and so much more. So welcome to episode one of LGB Time Machine, where I'll be talking about the criminalization and persecution of homosexuality in the 20th century USA. And without further ado, let's hop in this time machine and let's get going. Our first stop is way back. I'm talking BCE times. As much as we in the US and in Western civilization in general tend to assume that things are started and began with us, in this case, in all cases actually, that's not true. So before we jump straight into the persecution of us gay folk in the 20th century, I'm going to give the teeniest bit of background information. As far back as we have records of humanity, we have records of homosexuality. Most everyone has heard of the infamous dick jokes in Pompeii, but as early as 9600 BCE, approximately, we have art that some historians believe depicts homosexuality. I say some historians because it's pretty common knowledge that most of the old guard we're pretty adamant that nothing ever, ever was depicting or referencing homosexuality. I'm serious. They were looking at a diary entry from a woman, and it said, I've loved this woman with, for all of my life, with all of my heart. Every night I dream of holding her and kissing her. She's the only companion I ever want. And they're just like, oh my god, look how close these girls were. Friendship. Great. So, you know, not a great standard of history here. So we're going to try and improve on that. Nonetheless, as we move forward in time, these depictions of homosexuality, and also depictions of individuals who are not cisgender, we'll touch on that in a future episode, just increase as we move forward in time. However, while depictions of homosexuality are plentiful in the early millennia before Common Era, the first instance of it being a crime isn't seen until 1075 BCE. The records of the Codes of Asura, Assyrian law, include Code I-20, which stated that if a man has had sex with his neighbor or brother-in-arms, he has been charged and convicted, he is to be considered defiled and made into a eunuch. Not only does this show us, one, that homosexuality was a known enough practice back then that they had to create laws against it, but two, at some point between the 9th millennium and the 2nd millennium BCE, something changed in regards to how homosexuals were viewed. 
And three, castration was a common enough custom that it was the go-to punishment for this circumstance. Even worse, castration of homosexual slaves and house servants was very common, and even sadder. This custom never truly disappeared as a punishment for homosexuals, even in the 20th century with chemical castration. But we're not in the 20th century yet. We're still traipsing our way through BCE, and this time machine really doesn't like to make jumps as huge as that. The next moment of note takes place in the 5th century BCE. Sometime before 486 BCE, the Book of Leviticus was written. And I, I'm pretty sure most everyone is familiar with this, but I'm talking about like written in the Torah, what a lot of people call the Old Testament, predating the Bible. Leviticus included gems such as, You shall not lie with a man as with a woman, it is an abomination, 1822. And also, like, the idea that, like, if you do, you should be put to death. So, in 486 BCE, Darius I adopted the Holiness Code of Leviticus for Persian Jews. Darius I was kind of a big deal. He was the first Persian ruler certain to have been a Zoroastrian, and he placed the Jews in positions of power and encouraged the restoration of their destroyed main temple and the adoption of a statute book to govern their reorganized community. This included the Holiness Code of Leviticus. It is here that the death penalty for certain forms of homosexuality appears for the first time. So he's kind of big deal and, you know, uses his power to uh, persecute gays. Because what else do you do when you're in charge? So following good old Darius I, homosexuality also received criticism from some Greek philosophers. They believed it was perverse and wrong, mostly on the basis that it did nothing to further humanity as a species. Uh, given what we know about the Greeks and Romans, I think it's safe to say that their criticism wasn't taken to heart, but you know, this just serves to enforce the idea that homosexuality wasn't always taken kindly to. The persecution of homosexuals continued throughout BCE and CE times. We're going in the future now. Great Britain. It's exciting stuff. In semi-recent Western civilization, one of the most notable laws against homosexuality was, get this, the Buggery Act of 1533 in Great Britain. It depicted that homosexual intercourse was not only illegal, but was also now a capital offense. The offenders being hereof convicted by verdict, confession, or outlawry shall suffer such pains of death and losses and penalties of their good chattels, debts, lands, tenements, and hereditaments as felons do according to the common laws of this realm. The Buggery Act remained in place in some form or another until 1861, when sodomy and buggery were downgraded from being capital offenses with the Offenses Against Persons Act. However, sodomy and buggery were still illegal in Great Britain and Wales until 16, 1967. But you know, at least you couldn't be killed for it. Silver lining and all. See, the United States colonies weren't exempt from this either. The colony of Virginia enacted a military order criminalizing male sodomy as a capital crime in 1610. No man shall commit the horrible and detestable sins of sodomy upon pain of death. The military order ended in 1618, when martial law was terminated upon the change of control in the Virginia Company. However, sodomy was still illegal. In fact, in 1625, a man named Richard Cornish was hanged in Virginia for forcibly sodomizing a man working aboard his ship, Ambrose. My understanding is that those involved were more concerned about the sodomy than the fact that he raped someone. Great. That shows you a bit about the climate in the colonies, but here are some other quick tidbits to highlight things. In 1649, Sarah White Norman, 25, and Mary Vincent Hammond, 15, 
were charged with lewd behavior with each other upon a bed. Hammond was admonished, but nothing more, because of her age. But Sarah White Norman stood trial. She had to make public acknowledgement of her behavior and was warned not to behave so in the future. However, she lived approximately six to ten more years after this trial. In 1655, the Connecticut colony passed a law against sodomy and lesbian intercourse, and in 1792, a Virginia law was passed that said that if any do commit the detestable and abominable vice of buggery with man or beast, he or she, so offending, shall be adjudged a felon and shall suffer death in the case of a felony without the benefit of clergy. So I mentioned these instances to demonstrate that the laws didn't just target gay men, but all LGBTQ plus individuals to show the climate towards homosexuals, towards homosexuality was prior to the 20th century. There are also a lot of cases of people who were cross-dressing and stuff, and it just wasn't a great time to be gay or in the community. Now that we've glanced over some stuff, I guess it's time to talk about the persecution of LGBTQ plus people in the 20th century, because that's what we're here for. Not that that's necessarily exciting to talk about, but it is important to talk about. There is so much content in the 20th century, so please recognize that this is just an overview with some specifics mentioned as opposed to an in-depth surgery. As I said at the, at the beginning, future episodes will be touching on things with a lot more attention to single aspects events and their ramifications, whereas with this episode, I wanted to cover a more general overall history, of like, just to give ourselves a launching off point. So here's hoping that works out in the end. Um, so you know, we've calibrated this metaphorical time machine, and the year is 1903, and we find ourselves in New York City. Some people might already be familiar with this, but we're going to be talking about the Ariston Hotel Bath Raid. The Ariston Hotel bath, Bathhouse was the site of the first U.S. recorded raid on a gay bathhouse by the New York City police. For those unfamiliar, bathhouses played a large role for gay men in the early 20th century. This was in part because gay bars as we know them didn't really emerge until the late 1930s making the bathhouses the epicenter of activity for urban gays. Urban gays. That sounds like a cool band. Sorry, yeah. Um, back to this. George Chauncey, author of Gay New York, highlighted the cause for their popularity when he referred to the New York City bathhouses as the safest, most enduring, and most affirmative of the setting in which gay men gathered in the first half of the 20th century. To the gay men in New York City, bathhouses were rare spaces where they could be alone and where they didn't have to share spaces with hostile outsiders, as described by Brian Donovan, author of Respectability on Trial. He also wrote that bathhouses were perceived as protective places where men could meet other men for sexual encounters without fear of being blackmailed or persecuted. The Ariston Baths were located in the basement of the Ariston Hotel and had been operational as early as 1897. The baths were described to have a swimming pool, a steam room, a hot room, four cooling rooms with leather and wicker cots, and visitors could also find exer an exercise room with gym equipment, a place to purchase drinks and cigars, and a parlor to socialize in. So it had everything they needed. Like other bathhouses, the Ariston Hotel Baths was thought to be safe. However, in early 1903, the police started infiltrating the baths secretly. The official police raid took place on February 21, 1903, at the order of Police Commissioner Green. 
Thomas Phelan and Norman Fitzsimmons were the two officers in the establishment on the night of the 21st, and historians know that Fitzsimmons had visited the bath for surveillance on at least two other occasions. This wasn't a random, like, raid. This was planned. According to Brian Donovan and Thomas Phelan's court testimony, a man named Rocker Bennett attempted to seduce Phelan and invited him into another room so that Bennett could give him a very pleasant time. And although Fitzsimmons attempted to join them for surveillance purposes, he was rebuffed due to his physical appearance. Throughout the night, more undercover officers joined Phelan and Fitzsimmons, and all recounting witnesses many said about many instances of oral and anal sex taking place, most acts on or around the cots in the cooling room. It's said that 78 men were found there, and anywhere from 11 to 37 were arrested for felony or disorderly conduct. So there's a lot of discrepancy here, and part of it is just it happened so long ago. But also, multiple newspapers and magazines reported entirely different numbers, so it's unclear which report is wholly accurate. The Minneapolis Journal, for example, reported 26 arrests. The New York Sun only reported 11 felony arrests, and a third paper reported that 60 men were detained, but only 14 had been arrested. So nonetheless of how many arrests were actually made, we do know that some of them went to trial. And these, tri- these trials tell us a lot about what the attitude was in the early 20th century. So a couple of court records are still available for those interested in reading them, and I will link to them on, my, um, on the site. So the defense for this had a couple of arguments, depending on who was on trial. One defense argued that case, some cases that upright anal sex was physiologically impossible. This was seen in the People vs. Craigle, which was supported by the testimony of Dr. Pierre A. Seigelstein, who said that the angles involved made anal, made anal sex absolutely physically impossible, and that the couches in the Ariston baths were too low for anal sex to take place, an argument that was also seen in the, police, the People vs. Galbert. The defense also attempted to prove their client's heterosexuality at every turn. We saw this in the People vs. Snydell and the People vs. Bennett. In the case of People vs. Caldwell, the defense also targeted Thomas Phelan and the other police officers in the room. This is a quote, saying, Yet shameless to everything, shameless to the witnesses there, to the officers, to everybody in that room, the defendant walks in and the sheet comes off of him, and not a word is said about him before, as to any act of any kind or character that would reflect upon him. And he stands before those officers, watching him, with his penis erect. Is it true? Is it credible? That is what I want to ask you. He argued that most men would be too embarrassed to have public sex, and as, a get, as men of good character, would Officer Phelan and Fitzsimmons have been able to stand so close to Codwell and Bennett while they had anal intercourse if he was truly an upstanding moral man? Not only did this call into question the events, but it also called into question the characters of the police. Are they meant to be defending our city? Are they meant to be good, moral, upright men if they watched two men have anal sex and did nothing to intervene? So that was a big question that they asked. Caldwell's lawyer also attempted to highlight his masculinity by recounting how his client had resisted arrest and fought back, something a feminine homosexual would never do. Yeah, he threw a couple punches, he spit on an officer, he resisted arrest, That was their entire basis for saying he clearly can't be homosexual because homosexual men aren't masculine. Just that perception tells you a lot about how society viewed gay men at the time.
Nonetheless, Caldwell and all of the others mentioned were all found guilty and sentenced to over seven years in prison. A judge involved in the case is attributed for saying this. We cannot disguise the fact that any reference to the testimony in this case must necessarily be very unpleasant and disagreeable. It affects the very self-respect for ourselves in regard for our humanity. It brings to mind a species of horror to think that any person, any human, being endowed with intelligence, with reason, would be guilty of such horrible practices. I think that says it all. The attitude that the police and the judge and everyone else held towards homosexuals at the end of the century, or at the turn of the century, was kind of horrific. They compared homosexuals to animals, saying that anyone with intelligence, with reason, would never behave like this. And that attitude wasn't only towards gay men, y'all. It was towards anyone in the LGBT community. Prior to the 20th century, the relationship between women were viewed differently than they were in the post-Great Depression climate. We'll touch on that later, but for now I simply wanted to highlight that while sexual and romantic freedom had been explored in the 18th and 19th and even the early 20th century, by the 1930s this was no longer the case for women. Historian Lillian Faderman wrote in on the 1930s, not only would a woman have considerable difficulty in supporting herself, but she would also have to brave the increasing hostility towards independent females that intensified in the midst of the depression and the continued spread of medical opinion regarding the abnormality of love between women. Faderman, Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers, which is a great book if you want to pick it up. It talks about the history of lesbians in the 20th century. A lesbian woman was also at a disadvantage because the lesbian subculture was still fledging, fledgling and well-hidden. Women were also often married to men and had little interaction with other women and faced hospitalization or destruction of their reputation in life if their lesbian inclinations were to come to light. During and following the Great Depression, women were discouraged from working because it would cause competition between men and women for jobs. Working women came to be the scapegoat for the poor economy that left 25% of the labor force unemployed at the height of the Depression, Lillian Faderman wrote. There was also a belief that work defeminized a woman, and you know, we, we can't have that. Women just gotta be feminine and lovely and wear dresses and be great housewives. Because of this, well, well-brought-up middle-class women who felt drawn towards other women were unable to act on it because to do so would put themselves in a financially unstable position and ruin their future prospects. Thus, their marriage to men, although many, still pursued lesbian affairs because you can't stop it. As I said, lesbians were viewed with the same disgust as gay men in the early 20th century, as images of monstrosities and decadence were often associated with lesbians in the 1930s. A conception of the lesbian as a pathetic creature who was cut off from the rest of womankind by her rare, rare abnormality was the standard. In fact, it was because of how lesbians were viewed that the U.S. saw a rise in the concept that would later be known as conversion therapy. When medical doctors of the 1930s expressed their determination to prevent homosexuality through education and treatment, they went largely unchallenged. Homosexuals, the doctor said, remained at an immature level of social adjustment and could not hope to achieve maturity as long as they were homosexual, Lillian Faderman wrote. And no woman would come forth to contradict these beliefs without fear of psychotherapy or doses of hormones or the removal of one of their adrenal glands. They kind of put everything in a sticky situation, because if you love a woman, you want to show that woman you love her, you're risking your life 
you're risking your reputation, you're risking your financial stability, you're risking basically everything. And at that time, that was a risk that not a lot of women were able to take, at least not openly. But moving on. I feel like this would be a really crappy survey of history in the 20th century if I didn't at least touch on World War II, so that's our next stop. To be fair, there's a lot to unpack with World War II, just in Germany, with Germany and the US's treatment of LGBTQ plus individuals, and we're not going to do that in this episode, because that would take hours and hours. So look forward to that in a, a new episode that'll be coming sometime in the future. However, I am going to touch on some of it, because like I said, Otherwise, I'd be failing as a historian, and, you know, I'm trying not to do that. So leading up to and during what is now called the Holocaust, the National Socialist German Workers' Party banned homosexual groups. Gay men were put into concentration plant camps and marked with pink triangles. This is pretty well known. It's important to note, though, that there were Nazis who were openly homosexual and yet were not persecuted. This is possibly because the Nazi party used homosexuality as an excuse to persecute dissenters, meaning they targeted non-compliant homosexuals, but as long as you were picking up what they were putting down, so to speak, they left you well enough alone. Unless, of course, you fell into any of the other targeted groups as well. At that point, you're fucked. Excuse my language. As part of their ban on homosexuality, Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Research was destroyed. We'll be talking about him in a future episode, because he is kinda important. It's also, I also want to note that after the Holocaust ended, many homosexual survivors were forced to carry out their sentence in the camps. And the Holocaust also kind of reflected a global attitude towards homosexuals. This wasn't just Germany hating the gays. This was a global hatred. Again, after the camps were liberated, a lot of homosexual men were forced to continue serving their sentence there. That says something. During World War II, the United States was also grappling with homosexuality, particularly within its military. Any man who had what were called homosexual tendencies was subject to a court-martial, and the government was concerned about involving women due to the perception that war was a breeding ground for lesbianism and homosexuality. However, a need for personnel made the military more and more lax as time went on. You need people. You can't fight the war without people. Well... You're kind of out of luck unless you rec recruit women. In fact, many officers were outright told to ignore lesbian activity because they needed women for the reasons highlighted by Johnny Phelps to General Eisenhower. This is a pretty well-known quote. But in the 1940s, the Army conducted an investigation into lesbian activity in the Women's Army Corps. General Eisenhower tried to ferret out the lesbians in the, the WAC, Johnny Phelps responded, saying, Yes, sir, if the general pleases, I will be happy to do this investigation. But, sir, it would be unfair of me not to tell you, my name is going to head the list. You should also be aware that you're going to have to replace all the file clerks, the section heads, most of the commanders, and the motor pool. I think you should also take into consideration that there have been no illegal pregnancies, no cases of venereal disease, and the general himself has been one to award good conduct commendations and service commendations to these members of the WAC detachment. To which the general just said, forget the order. It got to the point that the military put out the sex hygiene lectures, a series printed for military officers that told circumstances of war and a young woman's removal from familiar 
surroundings could result in lesbian behavior. Officers were told to take action against lesbianism only insofar as its manifestations undermine the, the efficiency of the individual concerned and the stability of the group. And the lecturers recommended that two lesbians who behave, whose behavior was disruptive should be administratively split, but they should not be discharged. Again, frankly, it boils down to the fact that the military couldn't afford to lose so many personnel. Not during a war. Not at all. But, you know, at the same time, the 1940s also saw a rise in the concept of the lesbian sicko who needed to be cured. Ergo, the rise of conversion therapy in the United States of America. By the 1950s, conversion therapy, especially for lesbians, was a booming business. In 1952, the American Psychology, Psychology Association listed homosexuality in their first edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as a sociopathic personality disturbance. Isn't that great? That did get removed later on, but just so you guys know, that was... It had a bit of time being listed as a mental illness, and that definitely impacted everything that happened in the next, like, two decades. Um, so, yeah. The listing of homosexuality as a mental disorder helped shape the atmosphere in the 1950s and led to the persecution of homosexuality, homosexuality within the U.S. government in what is now called the Lavender Scare. Before homosexuality was listed as a mental illness, however, before the, US state, the United States' involvement in World War II, there was a man named Sumner Wells who would unknowingly cause the Lavender Scare in a whole lot of trouble. It's this man, he's a name to know. And yeah, Sumner Wells worked in the State Department as the Undersecretary of State, and he worked closely with Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, Wells had gone to the same school as FDR, had been a page at FDR's wedding, and they were really close friends and colleagues. He was involved in setting up the United Nations with the negotiations during and after the invasions of Cuba, Honduras, and the Dominican Republic. Wells experienced a great deal of success due to his solid grasp on world affairs, the fact that he spoke several languages, and that he was a well-known, he was known as a diligent worker. Two Washington colonists Alsop and Kintner described him as a tall, powerfully built, beautifully tailored man with a glacial manner and an expression which suggests that a morsel of bad fish had somehow or other lodged itself in his mustache. Lovely. Wells experienced trouble on September 7th of 1940. He was on a presidential train to Alabama for the funeral of William Bankhead, who was the Speaker of the House of Representatives. On that train, he drunkenly tried to seduce several Pullman porters. A similar incident occurred again weeks later. FDR, a close friend of Wells, tried to excuse Wells' behavior and attempted to retain the man's position. He failed, though, mostly in part because of a man named William Bullitt. Bullitt was a presidential advisor to FDR and held animosity towards Wells for several reasons. Bullitt had wanted the undersecretary position and presumably felt spurned when it was given to Wells instead of him. So, you know, jealousy fueling a fire is always great. Bullitt also hated Wells and homosexuals because his, life, his wife had had a lesbian affair a decade earlier, leading to a bitter divorce and a battle for the custody of their daughter. So, you know, not great. 
As such, Bullitt felt that the State Department was in very bad and dangerous company with Wells as undersecretary, as Lillian Faderman tells us in her book The Gay Revolution, which is also a really interesting book that I recommend people pick up. Bullitt approached FDR with a sheath of documents regarding the Pullman-Porter affair, hoping to get Wells fired, and instead, FDR handed the papers back and was like, dude, I know. I, this, this isn't new information. You, thanks for the receipts, but you're like the last to know. Um, and even when Bullitt countered that Wells could open the way for criminal charges or political scandal, FDR didn't care. He'd already assigned a bodyguard to Wells to ensure that the situation was never repeated. And he, being the president of the United States, was pretty confident that no newspaper would report on the issue and he could stop any criminal charges from being fired or filed. So when FDR refused to listen, Bullitt went to the Secretary of State, Cordell Hull. Hull resented Wells for his connections to the president. Again, a lot of like bitterness fueling this. But so Hull ordered the Pullman-Porter papers to be passed along to one of FDR's adversaries, the Republican Senator Owen Brewster of Maine. Brewster threatened FDR with a senatorial inquiry unless Wells was fired. FDR didn't want to fire Wells. Wells heard of it. He stepped down because he's not about to get his good friend FDR in shit. And, you know, at that point, the secret was out. A fun fact, though, as told in Lillian Faderman's book The Gay Revolution... Later, Bullitt was running for mayor of Philadelphia and asked FDR for an endorsement, at which point in time, FDR was like, fuck you. But he didn't just say that. He instead said, if I were the angel Gabriel and you and Sumner Wells should come before me seeking admission into the gates of heaven, do you know what I'd say? I would say, Bill Bullitt, you have defamed the name of a man who toiled for his fellow man and you can go to hell. And that's what I tell you to do now. And to the Democratic leaders of Philadelphia, Roosevelt said, cut his throat. And so Bullitt lost the election. And FDR got some satisfaction in disrupting Bullitt's political career. Yet, the effects of Sumner Wells and the Pullman Papers became a ripple that would then cause the Lavender Scare. So, some, just some knowledge in case you don't know. Harry Truman was FDR's vice president. FDR died in April of 1945. Truman took the presidency. This inherited presidency came with animosity towards the right and their campaigns against creeping socialism. This is what Roosevelt had suffered, and now Truman was facing it. To succeed as president to get, and to get re-elected in 1948, which, let's be real, most presidents really only care about re-election, Truman knew that he had to show himself to be a good Cold War warrior as any conservative Republican or Southern Democrat, as Faderman wrote. On March 21, 1947, Truman signed Executive Order 9835, the Federal Employment Loyalty Program. This order established review boards with all government agencies in order to fire any employee and refuse hiring of any job applicant who was suspected of being disloyal to the U.S., this wasn't necessarily targeting homosexuals. This was, this was the beginning of the Red Scare. However, within the Red Scare is the Lavender Scare. It was John Purifoy, and I, I don't know how to pronounce that. That's French. I don't speak French, so I'm really sorry, John Purifoy, because I'm butchering your name. But yeah, he did the targeting. He was the assistant to the Undersecretary of State named so in 1946. 
Purifoy was a self-made man born in South Carolina and growing up on a farm while supporting himself as a night cashier at a restaurant while he was young. He is the epitome of the American dream. He worked his way up from an elevator oper operator in the U.S. Senate building, and he just kept climbing. He was a clerk in the State Department during the Wells Affair. He'd witnessed the fear within the State Department that homosexuals might be blackmailed by foreign powers to give up the U.S.'s secrets. So now, as the assistant to the Undersecretary of State, he saw how lax the department was, and he received permission from the Secretary George Marshall to handle the homosexual problem within the State Department. Purifoy invested a sing investigated a single man whom he suspected might have similar proclivities to Sumner Wells. He forced the man to turn over the all of the names of the homosexual employees that he knew of. This is, this is standard. This is the Red Scare tactic. Tell us all of the communists. Tell us all of the homosexuals. And then you go to them and they say, tell us all the homosexuals. Tell us all the communists. And then you have a list that's very long of a lot of people who may or may not be a homosexual or a communist. And at this point, I hope most people are familiar with the Red Scare and how all that went. But yeah. Eventually, he was promoted to position of Undersecretary of State for Administration, which was the third ranking position in the entire department. And from then, his power and this investigation into homosexuals grew. In 1950, Dean Aiken, the successor of George Marshall, was called before a Senate Appropriations Subcommittee, with Purifoy accompanying. He was bombarded with questions of his loyalty to the U.S., all because Aikson wasn't quick enough to condemn a friend as a communist spy. Again, lots of names being thrown out. Not sure how truthful anyone's being at this point, but there's hysterica, hyster hysteria. The U.S. government is like, oh my god, the communists have invaded. Oh my god, we're fucked. So they're kind of coming down on this man. So in the hopes of, like, giving his boss a break, Purifoy attempted to speak. Whereupon, he revealed to the State Department, or he revealed to them that the State Department had re removed 203 people deemed security risks to show, like, look, we're doing a great job. I don't know why you're coming down on him or me, because we are doing God's work here and removing these homosexuals and these communists. He said 91 of that 203 were believed to be homosexuals. This, of course, sparked a new panic and wave of investigations into the possibility of homosexuals within the U.S. government, because what the fuck? What do you mean, 91 homosexuals? How dare they? So, you know, at one point during, the, during questioning, a man named Lieutenant Roy E. Blick, he's, a, he's like a well-respected man. He was not being questioned because they like thought he was gay. It was just he was there. And he said, out of your 18 years of experience, they asked, how many homosexuals do you think there are in the District of Columbia? To which Lieutenant Roy E. Blick responded, there are 3,750 perverts employed by government agencies. He'd later admit that this number was a guess. So, you know, he pulled that out of his ass. But the hysteria of the media had already taken hold. Soon newspapers were reporting that there were 6,000 homosexuals on the government payroll, if not more. Flick stated during his interview with the Senate subcommittee that perverts were susceptible to betraying the government secrets because all one would have to do would be to threaten to expose them as a pervert, and they would do anything within their power to avoid that. Because again, if that came out, if you came out, your reputation and your life was ruined. 
you would not be able to get a job. You would not be able to marry. Your friends would ostracize you. Like, it would ruin everything. So, you know, there's trouble. They think that homosexuals are easily easy targets to communists. Almost immediately following his inauguration, Dwight D. Eisenhower signed Executive Order 10450, which was signed in 1953, which barred homosexuals from working within the federal government because they believed that LGBTQ plus people were depraved, and that depravity made them more likely to be communist sympathizers and also security risks. Um, we get this information from Naoko Shibusawa's The Lavender Scare in the Empire of Rethinking Cold War Anti-Gay Politics, which is also a really interesting article to read if you want to know more about the Lavender Scare, and we are going to be going in-depth into that in the next episode. Approximately 5,000 homosexuals were fired during this time period. The removal of these homosexuals from the government is known as the Lavender Scare. This, the Lavender Scare also led many businesses none of whom were connected to the government, to attempt to root out homosexual employees as well. There were national committees that sprang up whose sole purpose was investigating current and potential employees for homosexual tendencies. This is like a background check on steroids. They, they would know anything they wanted to know, and they went for it. And if there was even a suspicion that you were gay, you weren't getting hired or you were fired. So... Not only did the Lavender Scare affect the government employees, it affected national, like the national landscape of job, the job market. At the same time as the Lavender Scare, the U.S. also saw an increase in bar raids and arrests of individuals engaging in homosexual behavior. For the most part, this began, began with Dr. Lewis Miller and author, Arthur Lewis Miller and the Miller Act. Dr. Arthur Lewis Miller was a physician who theorized that the homosexual cycle of uncontrolled desire, which were as regular as women's menstrual cycles, because the homosexual can't control himself, the doctor told the Nebraska State Medical Association that science must step in. Because, yeah, it's like your period. You're like a werewolf, a were-gay. When, when that, that once, once a month urge hit you, you were gay, and there was nothing you could do about it, and you couldn't control yourself or anyone because you're just aware gay. So that was kind of his thing. And his belief was that large doses of sedatives or other treatments were needed to help the homosexual escape performing acts of homosexuality. So, you know, as all good physicians do, he went on to be elected to the U.S. Congress, and he wrote the Miller Act, which was a sexual psychopath law. The Miller Act made sodomy punishable by up to 20 years in prison and also mandated that anyone accused of sodomy, anal or oral, had to be examined by a psychiatric team. So, you know, not only is it illegal, but it, like, highlights the fact that this is now a mental disorder and you're going to get locked up. So the team's job, the psychiatric team, would determine if the person in question was a sexual psychopath, and if so... Or if they were brought in more than once, because at that point it's like, oh yeah, definitely sexual psychopath, no help for them. They would be committed to the criminal ward of D.C. St. Elizabeth's Psychiatric Hospital before even going to court. So that's D.C. The Miller Act also stipulated that anyone committed to the ward would remain there until doctors there deemed him recovered. This bill was signed into law by President Harry Truman in 1948. So... At the same time as the Lavender Scare beginning, at the same time as all of this, homosexualities are, are already being targeted by the law. Because, again, were gays 
and sexual deviancy, sexual psychopaths, and all of that shit. And the thing about it is, like I said, once you were put in a mental institution, the only people who could free you were the doctors who put you there in the first place. Very shitty. Very bad. Not great. So, instead of talking about each individual state and city to discuss how they handled the homosexual problem, I'm going to focus on one state, just to kind of give a general overview of it. You'd think this would be New York, but since I already talked about the Ariston bathhouses, I'm going to cross the country, and we're going to talk about California. I think California is interesting, one, because they're now seen as, like, the gay haven of the country like they're liberal they're california you it just seems like a place that would be more open but no um they created a place called addis addis gardero state hospital and again i cannot pronounce things and i'm very sorry but this hospital was constructed in 1954 in california it was a maximum security psychiatric prison where mentally disordered male lawbreakers from all over california were incarcerated Inmates were treated by a variety of methods, including electroconvulsive therapy, lumbotomy, sterilization, and hormone injections. So, you know, Lillian Faderman brings all the good info about conversion therapy and how shitty that was. The other reason I wanted to highlight California is that in 1955, it created a board called the California Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control. The ABC board, basically. Multiple states have these. However, despite its name, in California... In 1955, the major purpose of this board was to target homosexuals, specifically homosexual bars. According to Faderman, in San Francisco by the late 1950s, there were so many undercover officers and agents that some nights they made up 25% of the people in the bars. So, you know, not great if you're gay in California because you're just kind of fucked. You flirt with someone, you have no idea if they're a police officer undercover here to ruin your life, or just a fellow, like, lesbian who's trying to meet other lesbians because she's kind of can't find anyone else otherwise. And again, we're going to talk about the lavender scare and its impact on gay culture in the next episode. But so here are some of the cases of homosexuals being arrested. All of them are taken from uh, the gay revolution. On September 4th, 1959... James Cannon was arrested at Tigers, a bar on L.A. Sunset Strip, by an undercover officer named Thomas Ferry. At the bar, Ferry flirted with Cannon, bought him a drink, although, to be fair, Cannon bought him a drink first, and so Ferry was kind of returning the favor. Ferry chatted with Cannon's friends, and eventually, Ferry suggested that the pair should leave. Except, upon leaving the bar, Cannon met his fate. Because Thomas Ferry, of course, was an undercover officer. Cannon was charged with Penal Code 647.5, VAGLUD, which is vagrancy and lewd behavior. It covered vagrancy as well as lewd and lavicious conduct. So, you know. Another instance was when officers Marge Gwynn and Helen Davis were sent to survey Pearls, a lesbian bar, and they called a, called a raid on the bar that resulted in the arrest of two women, Lorinda per- Pereira and Dorothy Gardner, who had been engaging in lesbian behavior in the bar, and they were also both charged with vaglude. So, bar raids took place over the country and went on for over a decade. They, they, basically, if you were gay or a lesbian or trans, 
you were kind of living in fear because bars were the only place at that at this point in time where you could really go to interact with others in your community. Except if you went to a bar, you were risking your reputation because you never knew. A lot of bars actually had deals with the police. They would pay them off so that they would know when a raid's going to happen so that they could like try and keep everything safe because also this isn't helping the bar's money-making business to be raided all the time. Um, but so the wells, most well-known raid is Stonewall. As with World War II, to cover Stonewall fully, talking about what led up to it, what happened, its ramifications, needs its own episode. So instead, here is a super short overview. Um, and if you don't know, Stonewall Riots is arguably one of the most important events in modern gay history. It changed the way we live. Stonewall Riots are generally known by historians as the start of the gay liberation movement and of the LGBT movement, Q plus movement that exists today. So in the early hours of June 28th, 1969, approximately 1.20 a.m., the police raided Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village. In the late, like I said, in the late 1960s, police raids were common, but the response this night was not. Led by a lot of women, um, trans women, black and Hispanic trans women, um, some of which we believe are like Sylvia Rivera, Tammy Novak, Marsha P. Johnson, the patrons of the Stonewall Inn refused to comply with the police officers, and a riot ensued. This is the first time they did that. The first time the people in the bar did not go quietly. They refused. After decades of being beaten down and decades of raids, they were done. Um... So, all of the women that I've mentioned were drag queens at the time who would later identify as trans women. Um, Marsha P. Johnson is credited with possibly throwing the first brick or shot glass within the Stonewall riots. Um, also, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera would later found the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, STAR, which would provide help to, homeless, to the homeless and at-risk transgender youth. Um, so, with Stonewall, most of the fighting dissipated by Saturday, June 29th, but scattered acts of resistance continued through Wednesday, July 2nd. The events of Stonewall, the Stonewall riots, kind of were a catalyst for the gay liberation movement, sounding a rally for that movement. It became an emblem for gay and lesbian power, which is what Carla J. wrote in the Tales of the Lavender Menace. Um, Carla J. was a lesbian. So, this marked the beginning of a new era of LGBTQ plus life in the USA. So that's kind of, that's where we're going to leave off tonight. So there you have it, folks. Um, our time machine is a bit puttered out at the moment. So we're going to stop here with the promise of Stonewall and everything that came after looming over the horizon. I hope you found this episode informative and not too boring and not like it dragged on too much and that it's inspired you to consider the sheer depth of LGBTQ plus history and maybe do some research on your own. As I said at the beginning, I am by no means an expert, just someone with an interest in taking in talking about what I know and bringing more of our history to light. Because I feel like, again, history repeats itself, and when you don't know what your history is as a community, you, it's harder to move forward, and we, fall, we find ourselves falling into these cyclical debates and arguments over stuff that like has already happened. 30, 40 years ago, and we need to look at that stuff to keep moving forward. Um, so something important to note, I did a fair amount of research into this episode and quotes and cited things, and I'm going to try, I tried to cite my sources throughout, 
but I'm also going to have a completed Works Cited list available for anyone to check that, which will be posted with this episode, as well as listing the books and articles I used under the Further Reading tab. So definitely check those out if you're like, oh, I'm interested. Where Where's a good jumping off start point? Those are great. Um, and just to give you something to look forward to, some of the episodes include upcoming episodes like the homophile movement, the Lavender Skarnet's impact on LGBTQ plus culture, which had a big impact in like gay bars and stuff. So that's exciting. Um, a historical survey on transgender individuals throughout time and examinations of a lot of different global LGBTQ plus movements. Because again, I don't want this to be a U.S. centric or a Western civilization centric podcast. But yeah. This has been LGB Time Machine with Theo. Thanks for coming aboard and joining me on this adventure. Hope to see you again soon. But until then, love and light to you. Have a great day.